Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On Commons People this week, lockdown confusion grips the nation. So stay alert will mean stay alert by staying home as much as possible. Boris bumbles his way through PMQs. Well, I'm baffled. It's not me seeking to draw the comparisons. These are the government slides that have been used for seven weeks. And are we over-reliant on China? If Australia can, they've got a much smaller economy than ours, we can too. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hey Paul, Rachel Wearmouth here. Hello. Hi Rachel. And we've got the Conservative MP for the Isle of Wight, Bob Seeley. Hello Arj, how are we doing? Hello everyone. Hi Bob, how are you? How, how's lockdown? I, d- I never know how to answer that because personally, you know, it's lovely to be on the island uh, for an extended period of time. I, I am really concerned about my constituents and I'm really concerned about the country. Yeah, and well, we'll come on to talking about a lot of these issues um, because after seven long weeks in lockdown, Boris Johnson finally announced plans to start easing the restrictions this week. He ditched the stay at home message instead telling people to stay alert. But the announcements caused some degree of confusion, even for his own deputy, Dominic Raab, who wrongly said that you can now meet two parents in the park. Let's have a listen. If, for example, you're going to the park and you want to and you can stay two metres apart, you could meet up with another member of your own household. The key thing, and that's why we come back to stay alert, is as we make some of these changes so that people can get back some of the things that they enjoy about their lifestyle and their way of life, that we maintain the social distancing measures. So you, now, cannot, you cannot meet two parents at the same time? Well, you could if they're two metres apart. Okay. Uh, Paul, just for clarity, you're only allowed to meet up with one person from another household outdoors at two metre distance. But um, it's not been a great week for the government, has it? Well, uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, that is certainly clear. I mean, it's, it's, there are all sorts of anomalies that people can throw up. You know, why, why can an estate agent visit my, my elderly mother who's living on her own? But why can't I visit her in her garden? All that stuff. Um, no, and, but those are, it seems they're, they're almost sort of the exceptions that really are exceptions. On the whole, I think the government's real problem has been, ever since the Sunday night um, address by the Prime Minister, is, is trying to make the comms much clearer about what you can and can't do. I think so far, uh, the fact that we've, you know, we're Thursday now, yesterday, Wednesday was these new rules. We'll find out at the weekend whether or not people are flocking to the countryside, whether or not the, the police are going to have to deal with more trouble. Um, but on the whole, it seems though these are such small steps, baby steps, as, as the PM would call them, that actually maybe there won't be much of a change. Uh, and people are just sort of mentally now dug in. Yeah, Bob, um, are you first of all worried about people flocking to the Isle of Wight? And, and secondly, um, do you think the government's moving fast enough? Do you think it's done a good job with this this week? Well, when it, when it comes to people flocking to the Isle of Wight, yeah, I am concerned because we've got elderly and at-risk people here as well. And that's one of the reasons I was so keen to get the pilot scheme to get, well, 
to get the first part of the national rollout here because um, because basically where we just get that additional support. Am I worried about people coming over? I am slightly at the moment because clearly we need to continue protecting folks here. We have very we have very low coronavirus rates here. Um, at the same time, because we have the Solent and because we are effectively quarantined at the moment or as close we're ever going to get to being quarantined in peacetime, um, we don't have these problems to the extent to many other beautiful parts of the country like the South Downs or like the New Forest or like Cornwall. And they are going to be much more concerned about this easing up of restrictions. So uh, you must have the app, Bob. Um... Uh, yes. Have you has it alerted you that you've come into contact with anyone with coronavirus? No, yet? It, it occasionally pings me and says, "Oi, turn me back on," or you know, a polite way of saying that the app does. I think it says to stay safe. Uh, please turn the app back on. It's given me a reminder to turn it to turn it back on uh, to get the protection from the app. Do people always have to remember to turn it on when they go out, or does it does that not happen? Well, you can have it on all the time in the background. It doesn't chew up um, energy as is one of the criticisms of it um, I think um, the the I have to say the NHS team has been NHS X team has been superb and we've been working with a guy called Dr Garant Lewis and he is an absolute hero he's not only a doctor but he's a data expert and he's been talking to my local media and he's been absolutely superb in explaining all this and I now feel that I'm able to explain it only because Dr. Lewis and very smart people have been explaining it to, to Islanders now for a couple of weeks and they're doing a great job. And um, just moving on slightly, uh, Rachel, there's been a lot of worrying news about the economic impact of the lockdown this week. Uh, yeah, an awful lot. Um, I think the Office of Budget Responsibility said before this crisis begun that the economy could shrink by 35% during a three-month lockdown. Um, yeah. we, got, we got the first signs of that this week when the official figures showed that we'd had the worst quarter for GDP since the 2008 crash. So yeah. the, the economy shrank 5.8% in March and that amounts to 2% for um, this the last quarter compared with the previous. Um, and all of which, all of which points to what kind of strategy the government's going to have to take to deal with the economic damage. We got first signs of that this week as well. With them, um, there was a leaked treasury document which kind of talk, talked about potential pay freezes, tax rises, um, NHS social care surcharge, um, ending the triple lock on pensions. All of those things will be political, politically difficult. So. The, the tax lock and the pensions lock, um, they were manifesto promises, but so was um, levelling up the country. Um, and I, I think a lot of people now are starting to think about what lessons they needed to learn from the 2008 crisis. So they're doing a lot of thinking, I, I believe, about um, small businesses, which came out of the, the 2008 crash really, really badly. Um, you know, just the impact that the generation of austerity had on the country, how divisive it was. and. Yeah. But at the same time, the numbers are just so stark, you know, and um, Sir Ian Diamond, the UK's national statistician, um, he gave evidence at a uh, uh, committee this week and he said, um, you know, an L-shaped um, economic recovery, which is the, the worst case scenario, would also lead to a significant number of deaths because of poverty and you know long-term unemployment yeah, so who, who really it, difficult who, who was it who said that if the gdp falls by seven percent the additional deaths caused by poverty will be will be higher i mean 
you know, there are some very, very significant questions being being raised, not only about COVID. Uh, it, it is really not a battle of lives versus the economy. It's saving life now as opposed to saving life later. And it's a horrible, horrible conundrum that COVID has thrown up. Well, where do you think the government, do you think the government's in the right place on that conundrum, Bob? Or do you think it should be doing things a bit more quickly in terms of trying to get the economy going? I, I'm really, really wary. Uh, look, I, I would love, I would love to be talking about raising the lockdown sooner rather than later. But there is one thing, one thing that is worse than this lockdown, and that is having to do it again. So, do I like the lockdown? No. It, is it killing my businesses? Yes. Do people on the island, do all my hospitality businesses, want to start thinking about opening up? Yes. You know, is am I going to have a worse recession here than the rest of the United Kingdom? Yes same as Cornwall, same as other areas that rely on natural beauty and visitor economy. But there is one thing worse than this lockdown, and that is having to do it all over again. Yeah, so I would love to find a way out of lockdown. I mean, look, if we could have built, it's quite clear with the use of hindsight, which is really easy tool, because no MPs were talking about this and no journalists were really talking about it until it hit, because pandemics were stuff that happened to people in Asia and it didn't happen to us. Okay. We have now learned that bitter, bitter, painful lesson. We need a system, and the app and the testing and tracing is part of that, where instead of just stopping everyone's movement, we help protect and isolate as best we can those people who are vulnerable and allow other people, where possible, responsibly to get on with their lives. And the government is feeling its way there. Has the government done some things fantastically well? Yes. Has the government done some things not so well? Absolutely. That is not a conversation for now. For me on the island, I'm focused on making the app well and giving the government the, the learnings that we've got on the island to make a success of the app and the tracing and the testing scheme nationally so that we can move forward and we begin to work our way out of lockdown. Because if we want our public services to work, we need our economy to pay for them. But there's one thing worse than this and that's doing it again yeah interesting just a last question on this section but interesting what you said there about um pandemics being things that happen to asian countries why do you think we've got such a blind spot we'll talk about china in a bit in a different context but why do you think we have such a blind spot or kind of a, a feeling that it's happening over there uh, we've been, ever since the cold war we've been spoiled look i mean we are really bad at seeing bad things happening because effectively we're, we're arguably we're the only part of the world that still believes in Francis Fukuyama is the end of history, that everyone lives happily ever after. We, to, we are, look, culturally, for 30 years, for 20 years, we have been massively complacent. It took a Skripal poisoning, the shooting down of an airliner and a big war in Eastern Europe for us to get serious about Russia. This was not rocket science. A lot of people were seeing that and saying it before. Likewise with China. China, since, you know, this wolf, wolf warrior diplomacy, China's much more aggressive, much more hostile stance, the relentless cyber attacks, all this stuff has been happening, the, the malign influence, it's been happening for years. And yet we have sort of basically pretending not to notice. Yeah. And now the pandemic as well. So on lots and lots of bad things that are happening in the world, effectively, uh, we collectively, I can't just blame government because it's not just about this government. It was the last government, the coalition was probably much worse on this. And the Labour Party was probably was worse still. We have been in a state of hear no evil, see no evil. 
But know, Bob, on, on that, yeah. can I just ask you, do you think that actually one of the big failings has then has been, you know, it's the not naturally the job of something like the National Security Council and the National Security Strategy Apparatus to anticipate these future threats, whether it's yes. pandemics or whether it's foreign yes. intervention. I mean, what's happened there? We've had that structure for the last 10 years. Um, yeah. Has it been a failure? Um, I, look, I, I think uh, for my for my take, the I, I keep arguing this and I keep being told by the Foreign Office, actually, we disagree with you. The, 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 you need two bits of the, 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 the Security Council. At the moment, we just have a very, very reactive bit, which reacts to stuff and very often late because literally stuff has to be facing us just outside the front door for us to take notice. You need a National Strategy Council and a National Security Council. They can be pretty much the same but you need a national security advisor and a national strategy advisor who are different. Also, clearly, the national security advisor should not be the head of the civil service, as is currently the case, and that's completely wrong. Uh, and what uh, Sir Mark um, Temple is doing, uh, doing both jobs, heaven only knows. So we need a strategy council that looks 5, 10, 15 years ahead. We don't have that at the moment, and this has proved the need for one massively. Um, and I should do some work on that. I like that. Very interesting. Um, we we must move on, that. though, because because right. amidst amidst all this, Boris Johnson endured a, a bruising prime minister's question session on on Wednesday. The prime minister was badly exposed by Labour leader Keir Starmer on the care homes e epidemic, and he even managed to make incorrect statements about the government's own advice to care homes. Uh, perhaps Starmer's best moment came when he questioned the PM about why the government is no longer showing the public international comparisons of coronavirus death rates. Let's hear a bit of that. The UK has been going through an unprecedented, once in a century, uh, epidemic. And he seeks to make uh, comparisons with other countries, which uh, I'm advised, which I'm advised are premature. Well, I'm baffled. It's not me seeking to draw the comparisons. These are the government slides that have been used for seven weeks to reassure the public. Um, and the problem with the Prime Minister's answer is it's pretty obvious that for seven weeks when we weren't the highest number in Europe they were used for comparison purposes as soon as we hit that um, an enviable place they've been dropped uh, and last week he quoted in defense uh, Professor Spiegelhalter what Professor Spiegelhalter said at the weekend was this and we need to think about it we should use other countries to try and learn why our numbers are so high um, and so dropping the comparisons means dropping the learning and that's the real risk Paul, have the Tories been rattled by Keir Starmer this week? Well, yeah, I think that some Conservatives, smarter Conservatives, have seen for a long time this um, this submarine under the surface, which is tracking them in, in the shape of Keir Starmer. Uh, and uh, I think that, that it, it, what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is how he's been able to, to mix up his strategy. So, you know, constructive opposition... It's two bits to it. It's being constructive, but it's also being an opposition. And we've seen the opposition bit certainly yesterday. Um, I think that actually, obviously, there's some dangers for Starmer if he if he doesn't read the public mood too well. If he sounds like he's carping or sniping, then that could cost him some votes. But equally.
fully. I think there'll be a lot of conservatives, liberal conservatives and others, even conservative MPs, are actually quite ha happy that Summer's pushing Johnson so hard, that he's keeping him on his toes. Because at the end of the day, that's good for all of us. It does raise the game. I mean, it's not too worthy to say that, you know, whether it's on the furlough scheme, whether it's on extending the self-employed scheme, whether it's on, on, on hassling the government about PPE and testing, keeping them on the mark. It, it, you can't just rely on, on great conservative backbenchers like Bob. You know, you have to have an opposition doing it as well. Um, and the, the most change takes place when uh, backbenchers like Bob hear what the Labour opposition's doing and say, actually, and this might apply later to what we're talking about on, on China as well, when there's a mutual interest in some backbenchers and the opposition, actually, you've got this wrong number 10 or you've got this wrong... Um, to a department and saying you need to think again and that that's how democracy works yeah uh, Bob what do you make of Paul's assessment there are you happy to see a, a, a Keir Starmer opposite you in the in the comments no okay do, uh, electorally do I want a brilliant opposition do I want a strong opposition no is it good for democracy to have a competent opposition which we don't have yet because uh, Starmer is competent but you know there is endless quotes from the hard left people who are still in his team, you know, uh, and there was a long list of them. Uh, I certainly wouldn't put Ed Miliband in the job that he's got. And although I respect um, uh, Nandi a great deal, I wouldn't have put her in the foreign job as well, because I think they're, they're both wrong for those posts. Although Nandi said, said a lot of sensible things. Stam is a good lawyer. You know, he's going to put Boris in the dock, the prime minister in the dock once a week. We get that. And one of the most fascinating things and, and, and one of the most fascinating things I, I heard straight after the election, who was the media guy who was building the, the Conservative campaign? Isaac, um, is it Levine? Levine. Okay. Isaac said two, one thing which has stuck in my mind. We won big because Corbyn and Brexit, and there was a Boris factor undoubtedly because everyone warms them, but we won big on the negative points because of Corbyn and because of Brexit. And neither are going to be there next time. And Starmer is proving that. And the reality is that PM nearly died, thank God he didn't, but we have got Starmer and we've got COVID. And the world Boris thought he was living in, even until late January, is completely completely different now to the one that we are going to inhabit. And we need to get our heads around that very, very quickly. And I, I think we're doing so, but I mean, it's a different world. What can I say? Yeah, interesting. And Rachel, Labour folks must be thrilled. Um, I, th I think the, the vast majority certainly are and I think that's just on on the grounds of of him having of Keir Starmer having basic competence you know I think most of the Labour MPs enjoy their leader having respect and and being a threat to the government every week but I think um some of the more interesting things that have happened is kind of the the change in strategy of 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 Keir Starmer I mean the the Telegraph front page on um I think it was VE day was was quite significant because um, I think the Conservatives have sort of for a long time said that Labour's out of touch and that it's lost lost its bond with voters in the red wall. But I think that kind of perhaps Keir Starmer realises he can't win those those voters back and he's gone instead for an, a completely different approach and is, is parking Labour's tanks on the Conservatives' lawn. But, but um, in terms of some of the... the the more left of the party, they kind of seem to be giving him the benefit of the doubt at the minute. But I think they've certainly said that they want more aggression. And they said, and I quote one Labour MP I spoke to today, that they want more of a political atmosphere and not a courtroom atmosphere. Um, and I think they're concerned about some things that some of the statements he's made on Kashmir recently seem to change the position slightly. Um, but they're, 
they, they seem quite a happy ship at the moment, I'd say. It's, it's interesting you say that, Rachel, about Kashmir, because I talked to a Labour MP this week who was delighted by that change in position yeah. and said, actually, it makes us much less toxic with some Indian voters. Yeah. Can we actually... explain what that change is for our listeners? Yeah, which is, uh, yeah, sorry, Rachel, you'll go ahead. Uh, no, he's kind of said, instead of like wading into the argument, he's kind of said any constitutional issues in India are a matter for the Indian parliament. Um, and Kashmir is a bilateral issue for India and Pakistan to resolve peacefully. Um, which was very different to their previous position. Yeah, sorry, Paul, and, go on. But, but the, the, there is a wider point, which is, you know, what does Boris Johnson look like and sound like and behave like in a crisis? And, and it's worth asking, Bob, I don't know what you think about this. I no. mean, when Boris Johnson fought that election in December, you know, the main thing for him was, quotes, getting Brexit done and then reshaping Britain along Johnsonian lines, which was a sort of populist mix of all sorts of levers of the state in a not necessarily a deeply Tory way, but in a Johnsonian way, reshaping politics, more spending. Um, now we're probably going to have um, sustained borrowing so that it, it's like he's he's he was already going to change the way Britain works. But. Yeah. And, and I wonder whether or not actually this is not what he signed up for when he wanted well, to be prime minister. Is, you know, is, when he signed up to be prime minister, he did not expect to be running a constant crisis management week in, week out. And whether or not he can cope with that. I don't know if you think that. that I'm sure, I, look, he's a hugely talented individual. I have no doubt that he can cope with that. But what is equally true is that the prime minister was hoping that, that the money that was there was going to be used to reshape Britain or, and, and you know, put lots of money into infrastructure, infrastructure projects in places where, according to the Treasury's Green Book, they may not make economic sense in the short term, but they're valuable. And on the island, we would gain out of that. So I was a big supporter of levelling up because my folks need to be part of that, not just the North East, not just the North, but Cornwall, you know, the Isle of Wight, bits of Wales. There's lots of areas that need that levelling up and they're not just in the North. My, the worry now is that we're going to have to we are the reform of government becomes more important because we're going to have to do more with less the problem now is is that we're going to have to use that money the happy money that we were going to have for leveling up and just that easier looking back at it now that easy agenda when life was quotes unquote normal where a lot of that is going to go into just stabilizing the economy to prevent the the you know the l shape and try to get as much of the v shape or at least the u shape climb out of a very steep recession that we've temporarily hopefully gone into so yeah i mean all his calculations are going to look different that's why we have to start doing more with less so our role models in this are going to be places like singapore and south korea not only because they've done the virus stuff the covid stuff really well but because they've got highly efficient states that actually use less resource so we need a good state that does the stuff that it needs to but preferably using modern tech and all this stuff to drive efficiency. So we've got that money to spend on infrastructure projects or the tax cuts that businesses need to create wealth and investment to keep the jobs going. And South yeah. Korea, it's worth you mentioning there, Bob, the reason they're such an economic success story, is let's not forget, is partly because of quite heavy protectionism, uh, certainly in the 60s and 70s and 80s, to protect their nascent car industry and to get it off the ground. Um, and maybe we're seeing a bit of that globally now as each country thinks actually with shorter supply chains, how can we be more self-reliant? Okay. Well, there are two elements. There are two really critical elements. To what extent they will happen naturally because businesses will make those decisions. I don't want to be in China. I don't want to be in, you know, I want to move 
20% of my production to Vietnam or South Korea, and I want to keep, I want to bring back 30% to this country, whatever. To what extent governments will drive that? I, you know, we need to keep free trade because actually it's important, but we also need fair trade. And I think what we haven't had with China, for example, is fair trade. So China's still a quotes unquotes developing nation that in WTO terms, World Trade Organization terms, effectively they have a massive sweetheart deal at our expense. The intellectual property theft is, you know, has been extensive and is well documented. Um, the growing hostility towards us is, is unhelpful. Um, you know, an increasingly assertive um, system at home, this sort of surveillance state they're building at home, uh, the hostile attitude towards Taiwan, towards Hong Kong activists. It, it's not great. Um, and so we need to support free trade, but we also need fair trade. And that, that's what we haven't had. Well, as you've touched on there, Bob, the coronavirus outbreak has sparked a fierce international debate about China from its initial response to the virus to its wider role in the world. Bob is part of a group of Tory MPs who are concerned about China's role in the world and are arguing for a more hawkish stance. Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab addressed the issue of China last month. Let's have a listen. I think there absolutely needs to be a very, very deep dive uh, after the event review of the lessons, uh, including of the outbreak of the virus, and I don't think we can flinch from that at all, and it needs to be driven by the science. Um, at the same time, I think the one thing the coronavirus has taught us is the value and, and the importance of international cooperation. I've just been standing in for the PM on the G7 meeting, where we've been going through all of the areas where the UK uh, is providing uh, a leading role and working very closely with all of our uh, international colleagues on. And, and I have to say, um, there are all of these questions about the outbreak. Uh, but also, we had very good cooperation with the Chinese in relation to the return of UK nationals, the outset from Wuhan, uh, and we have on procurement of things that we need. So uh, we ought to look at all sides of this uh, and do it in a balanced way. Uh, but there's no doubt we, we can't have business as usual after this crisis and we'll have to ask the hard questions about how it came about and how it couldn't have been stopped earlier. Bob, you, you and a group of Tory MPs are calling for something very specific in the trade bill in terms of protecting, uh, in, in terms of imports of critical infrastructure and products. But I mean, just, just more broadly, pe some people have described this as China's Chernobyl moment. What do you make of that? Yes, I, I was going to China's Skripal moment, the bit where we all suddenly get serious and realise what's happening, but Chernobyl is a good analogy as well. Yeah, look, I, I think, that again, as, as regards Russia, the world was changing and it took us time to adjust to it, because I do think we've lived in, you know, we've, we've taken... We've taken a lot for granted. And I think with China, we have to get we have to get wise when it comes to Huawei, when it comes to the COVID crisis, when it comes to lots of things. We, we have to take a not more hawkish, but actually rather more realistic view of what China is doing. It is setting out to have global strategic dominance in many areas. Um, it is it does see this in a very Darwinian sense of being in struggle with the West. And I, and I think we need a more assertive approach on our side actually protects our interests and our economy and our technology and our security much better. But actually, it's arguably better for China in the long term as well, because if it can push and be aggressive and get stuff from us and there's no payback, then it will continue to do that. So we are almost encouraging Chinese authoritarianism by just by our unassertive approach to them. And I do think we need to work with other people to really change that dynamic. Yeah, Paul, uh, Rob's comments last month, you said there were hard questions for China to answer. Do you, but do you think we'll actually see a change in the government's approach? 
I think that the pressure is is building, that's for sure. As I said earlier, things only change when you've got a big majority government if its own backbenchers ally with the opposition to effect change. Um, and I think what you're seeing under Keir Starmer is that you're seeing a more hard-headed approach to China. You're certainly seeing a, a more hard-headed approach to Russia as well. And the big question, and it's a question for Bob too, is to what extent does what does pushback mean? What does not letting them get away with it mean in concrete terms? And what sense uh, will we be crushed uh, as a, as a nation outside a big power block like the EU in trade terms? If we do try to do something individually in, in trade, or do we rely on the US and the EU coming along? Do we sign them up to what we're doing first? Because... Um, and 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 to what extent would do we still need to engage with the Chinese people as opposed to the Chinese government? And that, those are the two big things for me about going forward. What, what do you do practically to push back? And separately, how do you not undermine the engagement with the Chinese public? Uh, when it comes to the Chinese public, you keep engaging as much as possible. And that should be an absolute rule of thumb because, you know, some are supportive of the Chinese Communist Party, but a lot aren't. And probably, you know, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think you keep engaging with people, absolutely. I do slightly push back, Paul, on this little Britain scenario that, oh, poor little Britain, we can't cope with anything, we're too small and insecure, blah, 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 blah. We have a much bigger economy than Australia. Australia is much closer to China. It has a significant Chinese diaspora. It has been a real target of Chinese influence. They said no to Huawei. They were absolutely adamant about it. There is no high-risk vendor involvement from China in their advanced communications network. And, you know, they're having spats with the Chinese, but actually, you know, the Chinese actually respect them. Kevin Rudd to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee said, if you don't defend yourself, the Chinese will have contempt for you. And unfortunately, we have not been assertive enough. So, Paul, I disagree with this whole sort of oh, we need to we need to find bigger friends. Yeah, look, we, we are the one number one nation in the world for forging alliances. It's probably what we've done better than any other nation going back to the days of Elizabeth I and our alliance with the Dutch and all these other people. Well, actually, just after that. So we need alliances. We get that. But actually, we can do stuff in our own right as well. If Australia can, and they've got a much smaller economy than ours, we can too. Yeah, you mentioned Huawei there, Bob. Is there anything else coming down the track uh, on China that, that is going to become an issue in Parliament? You, you're, you're proposing amendments to the trade bill, I believe. But Yeah, I mean, just on the trade bill, what we want is is a very quick... Uh, we'd like government to update us annually on trade dependency. We want government to work a programme to wean ourselves off trade dependency on any one country, uh, especially if that country is non-democratic, especially if that country has hinted that it will use other measures at its disposal uh, to make sure it gets its way. If it doesn't respect free trade and uses trade as a weapon, we need to be really wary of that. Uh, and that seems to me an extension of common sense. When it comes to Huawei, I mean, on the Huawei interest group, uh, which I administer, don't lead it because it's a collective, uh, but on the Huawei interest group, we have over 50 members of parliament, conservative members of parliament alone, over 55 indeed, um, and those numbers have been growing. So we've got, you know, healthy, a healthy several dozen members of that group, um, and those are people who are all very concerned about Huawei, but are also interested in China. There are lots of good groups forming now with the Conservative Party. That's just one of, 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 there are others, but the Huawei interest group is one. It has been Huawei focused, but we talk more generally about China as well. Okay, uh, Rachel, uh, there's, there's a kind of a, another uglier side in, in 
when people have been discussing China's role in this crisis, obviously it has nothing to do with Bob or all those Conservative MPs, but I mean, do we need to be a bit careful as well? Yeah, I think like, careful is probably a good good word for it, because um, always strong political rhetoric, however well-meant, however good intentions, could sometimes have quite big consequences on the ground. Um, and I think there's not, not all politicians have been responsible here. I mean, just look at how Donald Trump referred to this this Chinese virus. And, you know, we've seen a big rise in attacks against people of Chinese heritage here in the UK. Um, I think there was, there was one Rachel, study... When you say big rise, I mean, I have to say, I just slightly push back on that. An absolute exception to the rule is not a big rise. I see no evidence of, of hostility to people. And actually, just on the point, look, I haven't called it... I don't call it a Chinese virus because... It, no, no, I didn't, I didn't for a second. But actually, the, what I'm saying is the Chinese themselves called it the Wuhan virus. So if China is referring to this virus as the Wuhan virus, I understand that people can be making insensitive remarks. But actually, we say Spanish flu, and it's not like we're having a go at people from Spain, although interestingly, that flu actually came out of Kansas. Uh, and not Spain. So, and it was called Spanish flu, I think, because of World War One at the time. But uh, it's a, an interesting red herring. But the, the the study that we reported recently um, showed that over a third of people of Chinese heritage had experienced anti-Chinese racism in public places. So I think there's, and perhaps some of that comes with just the simple fact that we have a pandemic that had originated. I, I think, um, Rachel, I think that comes from the fact that there are some people who are quite moronic and quite really, really stupid and <laughs> quite unpleasant. But those numbers are very, very, very tiny. But unfortunately, social media can be quite anti-social media at times and magnifies uh, um, people who are sort of uh, out of their normal role as being as being sort of um, village idiots. So, yeah. Uh, Bob, can I say, uh, what do you think about this this whole issue of um, Chinese students uh, in, in Britain? I mean, the security yeah. services certainly uh, have been worried over the years about um, Chinese basically having effective agents over here by infiltrating UK yeah. academia as well as business. Um, and certainly some people have been suggesting actually one of the upsides of COVID has actually been a reduction in, in, in British universities relying on the income from Chinese students and being forced to actually expand their places for British students. I don't know what you think about any of that. I, I, I love, look, we should absolutely welcome free trade, freedom of thought, freedom of expression. So should we welcome Chinese students into Britain? Yeah, absolutely. Should we welcome the Chinese state spying on them and setting up a surveillance apparatus in this country? Absolutely not. So, look, there are some countries in the world, Paul, like Sweden, very liberal, you know, that have banned the Confucius Institutes because they're a front for the Chinese state, allegedly, to monitor. If, if Confucius Institutes are doing that, we should ban them. If Confucius Institutes are banning or leaning on people not to talk about Taiwan, the Dalai Lama, Hong Kong, Tiananmen Square, they are not part of a free uh, expression society that we want. So we should absolutely welcome Chinese people, but not the Chinese surveillance state following them to this country. And that is something, again, that we really, really need to be clear on. Right. On that note, it's time for the quiz, which this week is all on UK-China relations. It's a tough one, but um, Bob, pressure, pressure is on you. Pressure. <laughs> so uh, three quick questions. Uh, just shout the answer if you know it. Um, first question. 
Who was the first high-ranking Western politician to meet Chairman Mao after the foundation of the People's Republic of China? Okay, I'm going to guess. Was it Ted Heath? Was it no, no, Richard Nixon? No, neither. Eden. It was Clement Attlee as Labour leader. Oh, I was going to hold, I was going to okay. China in 1954. You're probably fed up with people saying I was going to say that, but I wasn't. <laughs> going to say that. Uh, it's he, he and Mao discussed international affairs for four hours over bowls of tea. Um, sure. Slightly easier question next up. Uh, in 2015, President Xi Jinping was the first Chinese leader to come to the UK for a state visit in 10 years. But who was the Chinese leader who visited in 2005? Oh. Oh, was it um, was it Li Peng? Jiang, was it Jiang? No, fancy okay. guess, Bob. Um, I'm going to get it wrong. I, I'm so I'm so ashamed of myself. I was actually doing what you should never do in a pub quiz, and I was actually looking up the answer online. As uh, <laughs> minus one point for you, Bob. That is a first in the quiz. <laughs> So ashamed now. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't use the answer, despite the fact that I did look it up. Yes, what, it what's was, the answer? Uh, Jintao, President yeah, Jintao. Yeah, Hu Jintao, yeah. Hu uh, but you, don't, you obviously do not get a point for that, Bob. You get minus one point, which means you're losing. Uh, you, you've got <laughs> a chance he, did, to... You've got did he go to the pub with Tony Blair or something? No, that was David Cameron. I was hoping you would ask Oh, that was Cameron, question. right, yeah. It was a pub in Banbury because they went to the... That was it. They go back to that um, Bista outlet. The Lost Chinese Bista Village, outlet. yeah. That's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right, final <laughs> question. Bob, yeah. you've, got, you've got a chance to, to get off the bottom of the table here and draw it nil, 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 which would be a depressing uh, quiz outcome. But <laughs> here's the last question. <laughs> <laughs> David Cameron was effectively barred from China for more than a year. Dalai Lama. Yes, well done, Bob. Bob and it is nil, it. nil, nil. It's a draw. It's a draw. Well done, everyone. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me. And make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so that you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward the hyphen war hyphen zone. Or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with Tory MP Peter Bone's assessment of what went wrong for the government this week. The television presentation by the Prime Minister was plain wrong. Too many of the Prime Minister's special advisers and aides think they are running a presidential government. But the Prime Minister goes on television and announces all sorts of executive orders without any reference to Parliament. Many of them have clearly been watching too many episodes of West Wing. Thank you.